you'll find Matthew 21, and then if you would, please let's stand as we read God's word for our text this morning. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, is the word of God for us this morning. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethsaida, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and followed them were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. Lord, again we bow. Again we pray. Again we plead with you, God. Have mercy on us. Open our eyes to your word. Open our hearts to your glory. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you have ever read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? You know the first line? Does anybody know the first line of A Christmas Carol from Dickens? Yes. Jacob Marley was dead to begin with. What a lovely opening to a book, right? It's supposed to be a kid's story. What's going on? But do you know what Dickens says next? This is a fact you've got to keep in your mind. Otherwise, what comes next, it will not be spectacular. You won't be amazed if you don't know this original fact. Well, all through the Bible, from the earliest days in the Garden of Eden, through the time of Abraham, through the days of Moses, through the kingship of David, through the era of the prophets, God made and repeated A promise. God would gather for himself out of the rebellious human race a people to be his own. God would send a man into the world to defeat the devil, to pay the price for the sins that God would forgive, and to reign over the world as a king. God promised, I'm sending someone to be your rescuer. The person that we would call Messiah, if you were speaking Hebrew, Christ if you were speaking Greek, the anointed, chosen Savior. And if you let that fact slip your mind, what is to come next will not be spectacular. But if you keep it, you're going to see glory. 
today. All through his ministry, Jesus has been doing things that show us that he's the one God has been promising. Back in Matthew 16, Peter even declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. But so far in the study that we've been doing through Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has almost always asked people not to tell others that he is the king sent by God to save the people of God. That is, until today. Today on the church calendar is Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday, one week before the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And today, we, by the sovereign will of God, are studying the passage that marks the beginning of this sacred week. Today, we study Palm Sunday. We study Jesus triumphantly riding into Jerusalem. And we're going to watch today as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and what he does today will set into motion all the events surrounding his death, burial, and resurrection. Today we watch Jesus publicly, intentionally proclaim himself to be God's promised king. And as we watch this story unfold, I want you to look specifically for ways that Jesus and the crowds both Show us who Jesus is. And as we see those claims, we're going to hear from God a command. Follow Jesus. Jesus is your Lord. He is your king. So if you're a note taker, if you write things down, make room for four points. They're easy ones to follow. But let's get started. Point number one this morning as we study the triumphal entry of Jesus. Point one, Jesus calls himself the Lord Jesus calls himself the Lord. Verses 21, one, or chapter 21, verses 1 through 3 say, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Well, if you follow what we saw last week, a lot of the scholars would tell you Jesus left the city of Jericho, and he made the 15-mile journey by foot, going up 3,000 feet, not 3,000 miles, as I accidentally said last week. That would be a really high climb. Apparently, I don't say things that I always want to say, and it's a good thing my job does not involve talking. <laughs> As Jesus made the climb up toward Jerusalem, he arrived probably somewhere before, I mean, definitely before the Sabbath, on the week before his crucifixion. And he spent time in the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, his sisters. Maybe they had a nice meal together. It kind of seems that there was a meal thrown in Jesus' honor. Nice little dinner party. Now, it could be that they had that meal on Saturday after the Sabbath was considered to be over. Because you know, the Sabbath in the Jewish culture lasted from sundown on Friday night and ended on sundown on Saturday. So either way, whether it was a Friday thing or a Saturday thing or how that worked, Jesus would have been well rested and ready to enter Jerusalem on Sunday morning. 
Now there are, by the way, I've got to mention to you, some scholars think that what we read today actually doesn't happen on a Sunday. It happens on the Monday of the week. They have reasons for that, but you guys can do that math on your own if you want to. I don't really care. But here we have Jesus approaching the city of Jerusalem from the nearby villages. He's He's staying at a place about two miles outside of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and many people are on their way into the city. This is the week of the Jewish Passover. There may be as many as two million pilgrims who will have made their way into the city before the celebration is over. Now, it would be possible in a crowd like that for Jesus to enter Jerusalem unnoticed. But this time, this time, Jesus intends to proclaim his identity loud and clear. So Jesus stops at the Mount of Olives near Bethany and he gives his pair of disciples a really unusual sounding instruction. He says, I want you to go to the next village and when you go in there, you're going to find a donkey and her young colt tied up and you are to untie these animals and you are to bring them to me. And some people would tell you this is Jesus displaying supernatural knowledge of what is ahead. He just knows there's a donkey and a colt tied there. And that's very possible. Maybe it is supernatural knowledge. But my guess is Jesus is simply doing something he'd already planned to do. He made arrangements for these animals to be available to him. My guess is Jesus knew the owner of these animals. And he had even arranged, you might say as a password, right, for them to be brought to him. Thus it is that the disciples are to have an answer ready for them. For the moment when somebody asks them, why are you untying these animals? Again, I mean, this would be like you coming outside and seeing someone getting into your car. That's not you. Your first question is, what are you doing? But he, Jesus, had set up a sign to give. The Lord needs them. And the owner would then send them at once. I do not recommend you try that with anyone's automobile. Now, before we watch, though, what comes next, here's what I want you to get. This is a really important word. Just like last week, Jesus is referred to as the Lord. This time, the Savior uses that word for himself. You're going to tell them the Lord needs them, and that means me. And that's a major, major claim, folks. When Jesus here calls himself the Lord, he is using the Greek word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is used in place of the formal name of God. When Jesus calls himself the Lord, he is calling himself God. Now, there are many things that a man can say about himself that do not matter. There are many things that he might say that you might shrug off and not even worry. I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I don't care. But a man calling himself God is not something you can take lightly. Either that man is a madman or perhaps an evil deceiver, or maybe he really is the God he claims to be. But you cannot look at Jesus when he says this and shrug him off. Either Jesus is God or he's not God. Either Jesus is Lord or he's not Lord. Either you will embrace Jesus as Lord and bow to him or you will reject his claim and reject him. But make no mistake, Jesus has, by calling himself here Lord, by by saying this about himself, by using this title for himself, Jesus has left you no wiggle room. 
Either you will see Jesus as God or you'll see him as a fraud. But there's no in-between. Second point. Jesus intentionally takes action to proclaim himself to be the Christ. It's a long one, but I couldn't think of a nicer way to say it. Jesus intentionally takes action to proclaim himself to be the Christ. It'll make sense in verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. One of the interesting facets of Matthew's writing is how often Matthew shows us that the actions of Jesus fulfill prophecy. From the very first chapter, readers of Matthew are bombarded with reminders that what Jesus did, that where Jesus was born, to whom he was related, how events around his life transpired, all of them perfectly aligned to do what the Old Testament scriptures had promised would take place. And I don't think this should be a surprise to any thoughtful reader of this book that Matthew would point this out. Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so Matthew wants his readers to see that Jesus unquestionably fulfills the predictions made about the Messiah. But even more so, Matthew wants his readers to understand Jesus really is the one God has been promising and promising and promising for centuries. And how better to prove the identity of Jesus than to show that Jesus repeatedly did what men hundreds and even thousands of years before him said he would do. You ever stop to think about how impossible it would be for Jesus to fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah? Students have done the math to try to calculate the probability of perfectly predicting the actions and the circumstances that one man, hundreds of years into the future, would do. That's exactly what the prophets of the Old Testament did by the power of God. And the probability of this coming to pass is astronomically high, according to these students. They say that to have a man only fulfill eight separate Old Testament predictions about the life, birth, pray, birthplace, and actions of the Messiah, they estimate the probability as being 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is 1 in 10 followed by 17 zeros, if you want to try to sketch that out on your notes. How amazing would that be? How rare are those odds? Here's what an author says about this. He says, let us try to visualize this chance. If you marked one of ten tickets and placed all ten tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir the hat and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one ticket out of the hat, the chance of him getting the right ticket is one in ten. That's not good odds, by the way. Suppose we take ten to the 17th power silver dollars. And we lay them on the face of the state of Texas. They would cover all of the state of Texas two feet deep. Now mark one silver dollar and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. 
blindfold a man, tell him he can travel as far as he wishes in any direction he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. That's amazing. It's stunning that Jesus would fulfill prophecies and multiple prophecies. Well, I want you to listen with me to some prophecies about the actions and events surrounding Jesus that Matthew says fulfilled prophecy. If you want to turn, you can. If you want to listen, you can. That's up to you. We'll go back to Matthew 1 and we're going to walk through the book. But I'm not going to slow down. Matthew 1, 22 and 23. I'll, I'll, listen, I'll let you flip once. That's all I'm giving you. <laughs> Again, you can keep going, but I'm not slowing down. Like I said, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 2, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Israel, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Chapter uh, 2, 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called the Nazarene. Chapter 3, verse 3, speaking of John the Baptist around the life of Jesus. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. All the way over to chapter 8, 16 through 17. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirit with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Chapter 12, 15 to 21. Chapter 12, 15 to 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 
Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is so beautiful. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. 13. 34, all the way toward the end there, 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Why? Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let's skip toward the end of the book, chapter 26. 53. Through 56. Matthew 26, 53 through 56. Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. 27, 9 through 10. Just one more. 27. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of, of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Go back to our section if you want to in 21. Time and time and time again. Matthew shows us that the actions of Jesus and the events surrounding the life of Jesus fulfilled the promises of God. Was that enough to convince you that what you just read right there that Matthew believes Jesus was fulfilling some scriptures? This could not happen by chance, not that many times. Now here's what's interesting. The prophecy Jesus fulfills in our passage for today in Matthew 21 is certainly not fulfilled by chance. Jesus very intentionally tells his disciples, bring me that colt to ride on as he makes his entry into Jerusalem. Jesus knows the prophecy. Jesus knows the prophecy is about the Messiah, the promised one from God, and Jesus intentionally fulfills the prophecy so that the crowds will know that Jesus is claiming to be the Savior promised by God. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 is the prophecy that he's fulfilling. In the Old Testament it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That is kingly Messiah prophecy. 
And that is the prophecy that Jesus, by his actions, is claiming applies to him. Jesus intentionally takes action to publicly demonstrate that he is claiming to be the promised one from God, the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. Third point. The crowds praise Jesus as the Christ. The crowds praise Jesus as the Christ. Verses 6 through 8. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So the disciples come back with the animals. You can imagine them going, wow, that really worked. And, and it's, time, it's time now for the drama to begin. Jesus is going to ride in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to display himself as the only one ever promised by God who can rule his people and save us from our sins. And there's a cult. It's a little, little foal of a donkey, barely bigger than like a pony-sized animal. It had never been ridden before. It wasn't even saddled. Jesus chose to ride that kind of an animal. He approaches the city of Jerusalem in humility. Jesus didn't mount a big war horse and prance into the city, though he could have. He came on the back of a tiny colt. Jesus' sandals were probably barely off the ground. But by doing this, he promised peace with God to everyone who will get under his rule. Why both animals, by the way? Why do we have a colt and a donkey? Well, if that young colt had never been ridden before, it was probably skittish. And Jesus was about to ride on them through a crowd and stir up a loud celebration. So it's really pretty likely that the donkey, the, the mother is brought along with her colt so she can be just sort of a gentling, a calming influence on the baby. Well, the two animals are brought to Jesus and the disciples, they lay their cloaks over the back of the colt that Jesus rides you know, laying your cloak down under where somebody's going to sit, you know what that is? That's a way to acknowledge him as king. That happened in the Old Testament, by the way, with the anointing of King Jehu. In Second Kings 9, verse 13, the Bible says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So they're treating Jesus kingly. Other people cut palm branches and they lay them in the road in front of Jesus and some people throw their cloaks in the road in front of Jesus and that is the first century equivalent of rolling out the red carpet for a dignitary. They were treating Jesus like a king. And those who couldn't get their branches into the path, other gospels tell us they just waved them in celebration. That might remind a sports fan of people in a stadium waving their towels around as they support their team, right? The crowds are acting like Jesus is the king. They're treating Jesus like you would treat a king. And if Jesus does not believe himself to be God's promised king, Jesus should do everything he can to put a stop to it. Look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Jesus doesn't stop the crowds from treating him like the one sent by God. In fact, he lets them praise him with even more Messiah language. They call out, Hosanna! Hosanna! That's a word that is both a prayer and a praise. See, originally, Hosanna meant something like, please rescue us. Please deliver us. But as it became more common in how it was used, it became a word of praise. It's like saying, you can do it. You're able. You can save us. You're the Savior. You're worthy. You're powerful enough. Saying Hosanna and saying it, Hosanna to the Son of David, you cannot get more Messiah talk than that. They're calling Jesus the Messiah with every word that they can come up with. They're saying, rescue us because you are the promised king. You are the promised descendant from King David from 2 Samuel 7, 16 and Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And when they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you know what they're doing? They're quoting Psalm 118, which is another Messiah psalm. We read that psalm earlier this morning in our Old Testament reading. And that psalm was known, known to be talking about the Messiah. Listen to two of the verses again. 25 and 26 say, save us, we pray. There's Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. By the way, as a little side note, the verses that came before that, you know what it was? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the day that the Lord has made. You ever heard somebody use this is the day that the Lord has made as just a, it's a bright, happy, sunny day, aren't you glad? That's not what that verse means. That verse means there's a day when the stone that the builders rejected, there's a day that the people look at someone and they say, you're worthless, is going to then be seen as the king. And that is the day that the Lord has made throughout all of human history and we will always rejoice and be glad in the day when the Savior Messiah reigns. Save us now, they pray. But they are singing to Jesus, calling Him Messiah, calling Him the one God sent. Without question, dear friends, the crowds and the disciples are calling Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus, by accepting that praise, is declaring himself exactly to be who he is, Messiah. Fourth point, last point for this morning. The crowds identify Jesus as the promised prophet, the Christ. Verses 10 through 11. And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus and his entourage, they find their way into the city, coming through that west gate of Jerusalem, and it's got to be uh, a buzz. Wait, the east gate of the city. The city's just excited, right? They're shouting. They're, they're waving palm branches. Surely that crowd from outside the city was met by a bigger crowd that's inside the walls. And they want to know what all the commotion is about, right? Why are people yelling Messiah praises? I mean, if you didn't know what was going on, wouldn't you want to know? Why are we calling somebody the one that God has promised forever and ever? That should get your attention. Why are people waving branches around? Who's the guy on the donkey? 
Who's the man who is obviously trying to tell us he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises? Who is that? And the crowds this time say who Jesus is in a unique way. They say this is the prophet Jesus. Now wait a minute. Haven't I just been saying to you that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God? But these people call him a prophet. Now, a lot of us have heard Muslims, Jews, say, no, 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 Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. He is a prophet. Is that what just happened here? Did we just, did we just deny that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God? Are we in disagreement? No, no. There's no disagreement here. Because you see, in the Old Testament, Moses predicts the coming of the Messiah too. And when Moses talks about the one to be sent by God, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desire to the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in, in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my word, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, that prophecy Moses gave in Deuteronomy was fulfilled in small by who? By Joshua. Right? Right after Moses, here came Joshua. But that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. Instead, fast forward 1,400 years or so. And you know what came? Another man. This time his name is Jesus. You know what the name Jesus means? Joshua. God is our Savior. Same name. And he fulfills the prophecy finally. Jesus is the one to be the communication of God to man. He's the word of God. In John 6, 14, the crowds called Jesus the prophet who was to come into the world. They see it. Now, what have we seen, for those of you who are fading on me? As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, we've seen four ways that Jesus declares himself to be the Christ, the promised one from God. How? Jesus calls himself the Lord. That's a big deal. Do any of you call yourself that? I hope not. Jesus takes action to intentionally fulfill prophecies to declare himself to be the Christ. The crowd calls Jesus the Christ. They treat him like a king. They sing Messiah songs as he enters Jerusalem and Jesus does nothing to stop it. And... In the city, the crowd calls Jesus the prophet, pointing to the prediction of Moses, of the one God would send. Dear, dear church, there is no argument. 
Jesus has claimed to be the Christ. The people have claimed Jesus to be the Christ. Matthew wrote this down so that you would know Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And now here's the big question. What does that mean to you? It means Jesus is the one who came to save us from our sins and be the King, God the Son, who will rule the world forever. Jesus laid down his life and then rose from the dead to save us and make us God's children. So here are your options if you've been wondering, why do I need all this data? Okay, I get it. You're claiming Jesus is the King. You're claiming Jesus is the King. You're claiming Jesus is the Messiah. Why should I care? Here are your options. You may either believe in Jesus and follow him to be saved, or you may reject Jesus and be judged. But there's no third option. For all who believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, all who turn over their lives and submit to his rule, God grants eternal life with him. But for all who do not believe in Jesus, for those who refuse to follow Jesus, for those who will not submit to the word of Jesus, God promises judgment. So listen clearly, my friends, to the command of God found in Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul said the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friends, Jesus has come. Jesus has already told you he's the king. Jesus has already shown you that he fulfills the promises that God has made. And there is no way for you to be made right with God but through Jesus. And God commands you. He doesn't, he doesn't plead with you or beg you or, or say, gosh, I wish you'd really think about this. Or say, check it out. God commands you to repent of sin and believe in Jesus. For you to disobey that command is for you to turn your back on the grace of God and say to God, I care nothing for you and I care nothing for your son and I care nothing for your kingdom. It is for you to put yourself under the judgment and wrath of God. So God commands you and I urge you Turn from your sins and believe in Jesus today. And if you already know Jesus, then know this. You know the King God has always promised. Jesus came first to die as our sacrifice. Jesus rode a colt into Jerusalem in humility. But, Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, he's not riding a colt. When Jesus returns, he will be astride a war horse, conquering, coming to rule forever. And those who belong to Jesus will be right there with him, following in his glory, honoring him as king. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following. It says, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, that gets to be us, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the picture of our king when he comes again. And if that's the picture of our king when he comes again, why not, dear Christian friends, honor Jesus as your king now? Honor him as king. How? Obey his commands. Listen to me, Christians. I'm not a legalist. I'm not a legalist. I do not believe that you earn your way to God's favor through obedience. I don't think so. But listen to me, friends. The Word of God is still the Word of God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you do not have the right given to you by God to disobey His commands ever. Do you hear that? Do you believe me? Do you? Has God ever said to you, in your case, you may not obey my Word. It's okay. I'm going to give you the freedom to throw this command you don't like out the window because you know what? It's hard for you. Does God give any Christian that? Then obey Him as your King. Honor Him as King as you sing His praises. Why do we sing? Because we honor our King. Honor Him as King as you declare Him to be the Lord over your life, the Lord over every single last piece of your being. Can you think right now about a part of your life where you want to disobey Him? Can you think right now about a part of your life where you are disobeying Him? He's King. And Christians, hear this call. If Jesus is the King, if He is your King, how about you proclaim that truth? How about you tell the world, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your family, tell your co-workers that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is their only hope of salvation, and Jesus is King. Guys, next week we will celebrate Resurrection Sunday. When we do, it would be a great Sunday for you to invite someone who does not know Jesus or who's wrestling with whether they know Jesus to come and hear the gospel. We will present it and we will ask them, just like we ask you, to follow Jesus as their Lord and King. Why not proclaim it? Why not join with the church through all the ages in calling on all people everywhere to turn from their sin, to trust in Jesus, and bow to Jesus as their Lord? Let's pray together. Lord God, again we pause and again we bow and we say this without any qualms. Jesus, you are King. You are Lord. You are Master. You own us. 
we do not own ourselves. We acknowledge, Lord, that there's not one single part of our life over which you cannot proclaim it to be yours. If we have trusted Jesus as Savior, we have said, you are master. Help us live it out by repenting of sin, by proclaiming you as king, by following you with our lives. For those here who may not yet know you, I ask you to draw them by your Holy Spirit to receive you as King and Lord. Help us, God. Help us be your people as you are our God. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.